0: You're listening to the 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time, and we do that in a three step process. We're glad that you're listening to us today. I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser, and we are on lesson nine of our series on Jeremiah. And as we've said, I think at the beginning of the last four episodes, maybe. There's a lot of stuff in Jeremiah, so just by means of reminder, let's kind of get all back on the same page. Jeremiah is bringing bringing a message of doom and gloom to Israel. I guess that's the shortest way possible to sum it up. Yeah, and you could at, uh,
1: even leave out. You could shorten it and just say doom. Yeah, and then just leave out the and gloom. The message of
0: message of doom. Yeah, that's pretty much the theme of what Jeremiah is doing. And we saw last week, it's going to tie in nicely to our lesson this week, because last week we talked about the evil leaders, or evil shepherds, evil rulers, and we looked at how the kings, and the prophets, and the priests, and even the people as well, are all guilty. They're all, one of the main themes is lying prophets, lying rulers, these people that are knowingly misleading all these people, maybe for their own personal gain, or uh, whatever reasons, we're not exactly sure, but they're, they're certainly not truly from God. And that leads us to our chapters for today, which we're going to cover 27, 28, and 29. And chapters 27 and 28 are going to be, I think, very interesting to everybody. We've already touched on 27 in an yeah. earlier episode. But we'll cover, um, really all this is going to have to do with Zedekiah's reign I guess is a good way to give it an umbrella umbrella topic here. But I really like what you've done with these chapters, outlining them based on lies and liars.
1: Right. And the reason I did that is I noticed reading through those three chapters that the word lie seemed to appear several times. And I looked it up. And the term lie in the English Standard Version of the Bible appears 11 times in the book of Jeremiah. In these three chapters, we have seven of those 11 occurrences. So, you know, that's definitely a theme just looking at the reiteration of the word. And as you pointed out, we have two stories here in these three chapters that are tied together by the theme of rebellion. And um, the first story involves a rebel named Hananiah, a rebel prophet, who lies and uh, we get the rebellion here at the end at, at the end of both these stories you have this statement you have uttered rebellion that's uh, the words to Hananiah in Jeremiah 28 16 and then uh, the second story involves three um, rebels Ahab Zedekiah not Zedekiah the king but a different Zedekiah and Shemaiah and it is said to Shemaiah in verse 32 he has spoken rebellion against the lord so lying is rebel rebellion against god and uh, that's kind of an overview of these three chapters now uh, let's go into them in our reading and take them one at a time starting of course with chapters 27 and 28 the rebellion uh, there, and this is rebellion against that yoke that Jeremiah wore, and our listeners, right. if they've been with us through the whole time, may remember our poorly recorded but mm-hmm. you know hopefully well given podcast mm-hmm. on the object lessons of Jeremiah that was the one that we did from you were at camp yeah the bird and, was in yeah we our, our guest the bird yeah, was, was involved rough. in that. Uh, but Jeremiah you know, was talking about the yoke of Babylon, and he was actually wearing this yoke on his shoulders that's mentioned in chapter 27, verse 2, where the Lord told him to make straps and yoke bars and put them on his neck. And then he begins to give his message, which you summarized at the beginning of the podcast, but you can look at um, the liars that are um, disagreeing with him, opposing him, and there are two sets in this section. The first is a group of five different positions that are given in verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. So there's five different kinds of advisors, wise men. You know, it reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet or mm-hmm. Pharaoh's cabinet, you know, having all these soothsayers and sorcerers and uh, necromancers. Uh, these, by the way, some of these positions were outlawed by the law of Moses, and yet they seem to be a big part of the um, cabinet or officials in Jerusalem at this time. Right. So those are some of the liars. And then we get more specific in chapter 28 with the guy named Hananiah. Verse 1 says, In this same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord. So he's in the temple, and he's doing this in the presence of the priests and all the people. And uh, you remember Jeremiah's wearing this yoke. And verse 10 tells us, that Hananiah goes and gets his, the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah and breaks them, mm-hmm. and I try to picture that in my mind's eye. What did he? I mean, that's pretty heavy-duty equipment. That's so, what I was
0: wondering. Like, how thick were the? <laughs> how thick are the wooden beams here?
1: Well, I, you know, I'm imagining what I've seen, which may be inaccurate, but I'm imagining the yoke that I've always seen in movies and pictured. You know. Yeah. And it's a solid piece of wood. Yeah. So you know, I don't think he took it in his two hands and broke it over his knee. He must have like mm-hmm. propped it up against a wall and just stomped stomped it to pieces. Know. Uh the the verb used there for broke can mean shattered. So this was a, a very um either way a is probably a pretty strong dude. Strong dude he broke it, but outrageous. You know, as outlandish as Jeremiah's stunt was, kinda, walking around with a yoke on his shoulders, well, this other guy, you know, mm-hmm. kind of trumped him with his object lesson.
0: This reminds me of, I don't know, when you were a kid, did you ever get like big sticks and try and swing them up against a tree and break the stick? Yeah, it didn't that? always work out yeah, well for like, me. I remember sticks that were too big. And we we'll probably end up taking this out later, but I mean, no. the sticks are too big. No, this
1: is what people listen for.
0: You swing it at the tree, and if it doesn't break, it hurts like crazy. Yeah, like it
1: hurts somehow.
0: It hurts your entire arm, and yes. I don't, still don't know understand the send the, the vibrations the up your up your arm. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's it. But I imagine like this guy to be able to break that yoke. This is totally. I mean, doesn't matter. But I bet him and I was a pretty big dude.
1: It sounds like it. I'm guessing, though, the first time it didn't break all the way through. So this is, you know, he. he, Wonder how many times he swung it at the. I don't know. He just seems like a fool here. But um, that kind of gives you a picture of what kind of guy he was. In addition to being a liar, he was a showman, and he's just really putting on a show for the people. What are his lies? Go back to verse two of chapter twenty-eight. He tells three in particular. The first one is, verse 2, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, says the God of Israel. Well, that's not what God said. God is the one who told Jeremiah to put the yoke on and say, Submit to Babylon. And he's mm-hmm. saying, No, I've broken Babylon. The second lies in verse 3, Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Well, you know, Jeremiah had said in chapter 27, verse 7, that this Babylonian conquest was going to last three generations because he talks about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He talks about his son and his grandson. So that's a lot longer than two years. And then the third third lie is in verse 4. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. He's talking about Jehoiachin. We talked about him last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, King of Judah and all of the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Those are the lies. Jeremiah's response is in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 28. He says, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord... Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died.
0: That's two months later, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, I was about to ask you if you'd paid attention to... Yeah, verse 1 says the fifth month. month. So two months after we're introduced to this guy, he's dead. Mm -hmm. So that kind of is proof... And we'll talk about this more. I want to discuss, you know, how do you know a false teacher from a true teacher? But that's the proof is in the pudding here that he yeah. was not right because Jeremiah is still standing and Hananiah is dead, according to the word of the Lord through Jeremiah.
0: Right. There's some stuff there I want to, I want to look into in the next section. I was actually making some notes on that. Yeah, you're writing furiously. So <laughs> As you said that. We may have so. to
1: do this episode in two parts. Yeah. Um, let's get to... You ready to go to the second scene, though? I'm ready. Scene two. Chapter 29. We have an intermission. Scene two. Okay. I'm ready to go. Uh, this is just chapter 29 for this one. And this is... The first one was rebellion against Jeremiah's yoke. Interestingly, this one is rebellion against Jeremiah's letter. Now, let me give you a little background here. The conquest of Jerusalem has already begun. Right. 606, 605, somewhere in there. Uh, The first group was brought out of Jerusalem in a deportation. This included Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is after 597. That's when Jehoiachin was taken. And also Ezekiel and 10,000 of the best of the people of Jerusalem.
0: So let me ask you a question. Are we around 10 years after Jehoiachin being taken away? Is that kind of the...
1: All I know is that reign? this we put this episode here because of tr- chapter 27, verse 1, and chapter 28, verse 1, which says these things came at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So we've been trying to follow the reigns of the king in order from Josiah to Hope Jeho- right. I always read the one after Josiah. Uh, Jehoah has Man, this Jehoia is the has? one
0: episode I did print out that list and bring him yeah, here with me.
1: I always forget him. He only so reigned for three months.
0: Hats. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin there you go and then this And guy, then now we're Zedekiah. in
1: Zedekiah's reign. Right. At the very beginning. So that's the best I can do. I know that um you know Jehoiachin reigned three months and was taken in five ninety seven which meant Zedekiah came in that same year or the year afterwards. And that's where we are now. Those two deportations have taken place, and the best of the land have been removed. And so it's now that explains why Jeremiah is sending a letter to Babylon. I had to explain all that again, they, you know the the noblemen picture, you know the uh, many of the prophets, Ezekiel is one of the recipients of this letter. Uh, you know Daniel may have been one of the recipients of this letter. Uh, A lot of Jehoiachin was somebody addressed Mm -hmm. by the letter, and a lot of other people. And so here's the letter in chapter 28, beginning in verse... I'm sorry, chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters... I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now there's more to the letter, but that's the gist of it. And uh, you see some very unusual advice there to the captives. It's not, you know, fight the power. It's settle in. You're going to be there 70 years And if you pray for the country who has taken you captive, what's good for them is good for you. Yeah. It's kind of like, make this your home away from home. Their prosperity
0: is your prosperity.
1: Now, what do the liars say? Uh, There are three introduced to us near the end of this chapter. Two of them are mentioned in verse 21. Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, son of Maasiah. Sure. And now, this is not Zedekiah the king. Right. Nor that can is get it confusing.
0: Ahab the king, right?
1: Right. That's, oh, that's a, a good team, point. Right? Yeah. Is we had Ahab long, long before so this. When I read
0: through this, I didn't catch the son of Kaliah in verse 21. And so I read on to verse 22 where it says, The Lord will make you like Zedekiah and Ahab. Naturally assumed that those were the kings.
1: Well, yeah. yeah and
0: considered these other two guys here.
1: And later on this this third guy, let's go ahead and mention him uh, Shemaiah, verse 24 there's a reference back to the old days in verse 26 um, Jehoiada the priest you No, know, Jehoiada the priest comes from an earlier time and so you might be thinking with Ahab that this is comparing Ahab to the current king Zedekiah as Shemaiah is compared to the Priest of the past, Jehoiada, but that's not what's going on. There are three false prophets here: Ahab, Zedekiah, and Shemaiah. Um, now, what what was their lie? We'll just look at it through the words of Shemaiah um, instead of trying to parse what Ahab and Zedekiah was saying. I think you know it's summarized well here at the end of the chapter in verses 26 and following. The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest. Again, this is not that he's taking the place of a current priest, but he's you know behaving like this priest of old, Jehoiada, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. So he's saying that the Lord told him this. This is this is um, Shemaiah's letter to the captives in Babylon. Mm-hmm. I, this is getting confusing because I'm, I should have said that. What I'm reading here is his response to Jeremiah in a letter to the priest of Babylon. And he says right. that he has been uh, placed in place of Jehoiada the priest. And the madman here would be Jeremiah. And you remember, he's been put in the stocks before. And this is what Shemaiah is recommending for Jeremiah again. Put him in the stocks and neck irons. Verse 27. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth who is prophesying to you? For he has sent us sent to us in Babylon saying, Your exile will be long, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. So that's the lie that's being told is that Jeremiah is wrong, and he needs to be punished. So here is the response, verse twenty nine. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. So it backfires on him because the priest, the very influential priest who received the letter, uh, he sides with Jeremiah. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalem, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehilim and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Um, so, you know, what's interesting here is you see this distinction that another allusion back to our lesson on object lessons Do you remember the figs, the good figs and the bad figs from chapter 24? Yes. Well, you see the good figs and the bad figs. In fact, he even mentions figs again in verse 17 um, in his letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am sending on them sword, famine, pestilence. I will make them like vile figs, so rotten they cannot be eaten. Um, And that kind of reminds us of that object lesson or the vision that Jeremiah saw of the bad figs and the good figs. Well, men like Zephaniah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those are good figs, and they're the ones who are, except for Jeremiah, they're the ones taken captive in exile. And the bad figs are the ones staying behind, who are trying to say, let's go with Egypt, Uh, we'll defeat Babylon, or this conquest of Babylon is only going to last a couple of years. Right. That distinction is being drawn very sharply now, and two sides are forming, and it's, it's really heating up here.
0: Right, so the first thing we want to dig a little bit deeper into is at the very beginning of our reading for this week. It's in chapter 27 and verse 3. Now, this is right after God tells, in verse 2, God tells Jeremiah to make this yoke and put it on him. Then in verse 3, he says, Send word to the king of Edom, king of Moab, uh, Moab the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon. And so, I guess at first glance, it's kind of interesting, or I guess curious, why would... You know, why are we sending this message out to these different kings? I thought the focus here was on Israel. Well, if you look, finish the verse, it says these envoys that have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, if you remember, a long time ago, Hezekiah had led a rebellion against the powers that be. And now here we have...
1: Syria back then, right? Right. Mm-hmm. That was the empire to beat right. in Hezekiah's day.
0: Right. And now we have, and at the end of that, we actually, you might remember that Hezekiah is visited by these people from, guess where, Babylon. And then that's yeah. where Isaiah says to Hezekiah, you've done foolishly, Babylon's going to come in and wipe everybody out. You've shown them all the gold and stuff in the temple. Right. So yeah. that actually leads to this. Cause he,
1: yeah, he, he led them through and showed them all the vessels, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah, right.
0: So that's a really yeah. good parallel, parallel there with the vessels. Uh, but here, in verse 3, he talks about these envoys from Edom, Moab, Tyre, and Sidon that have come to see Zedekiah. So they know Zedekiah, probably they know Zedekiah is wanting to rebel against Babylon and is planning on doing just that. And these guys all want to do the same thing. So they're coming to see Zedekiah and try to form some sort of allegiance with him so that they can all stand together against Babylon and that is why you see in verse 4 God says give them this charge for their masters that is their kings so say this to all the kings and this is basically where he says everybody needs to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and if you don't the God of Israel is coming after you and it's not uncommon for other kings to listen to the God of Israel Certainly, as we'll actually see with Nebuchadnezzar himself, uh, if you go look in Daniel, you can see that Nebuchadnezzar himself will listen to the God of Israel. And it happened several other times where these kings understand the power that God has. It's been proven before them yeah. right in front of their well, face. Think of
1: Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, capital of Assyria, right, to preach to this foreign king about the bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, the structure of chapter 27 is interesting. We outlined it a different way. But actually, the way it was written is you have Jeremiah's message to the nations in verses 1 through 11. And then he mm-hmm. turns to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in verses 12 through 15. And then he has a message to the priests and prophets in ch- in verses 16 through 22. Right. So it's just... You know one, two, three, and there's there's an interesting idea involved in that structure, and, and in the point that you're bringing up, which is that God is concerned about the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and he 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 doesn't just see himself as the God of the Jews, like in this yeah. mythology that you have in Canaan and other places where each nation has its own God he is the God of the Jews in a special way, but he's the God of the entire world. And Mm -hmm. he told Jeremiah in the opening of the book, when he called Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I've set you over nations and kingdoms. He's not just talking about you know Jerusalem, but I've set you over nations, plural, over kingdoms, to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow to build and to plant. And so, um, you have all these mentioned and like you said, they're probably involved in some coalition with Zedekiah over yeah. Babylon. But, um, you know, God God has a message for them, too. It right. solves an issue in our minds, you know, why is it that the Old Covenant was only with Israel and, and the New Covenant, you know, all of a sudden God's interested in everybody. Well, he's always been interested in everybody. You yeah, know, Israel just,
0: was supposed to be the light to the nations to show them the way to follow God, really. Yeah. It's the correct way to do things, and Israel failed to do that. And so we have the opposite language being used. There'll be a reproach to all the nations. So, yeah, you know, Israel didn't follow God, so you better follow God. Because now you see what has happened to them. So, you know, change your destiny, make things a little different. Um, are you ready to move on from this one? Yeah. You got other things to add? Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, I I also found verse 7 interesting in chapter 27. And, uh, you know, in verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. And we've covered that in previous episodes, so we're not going to belabor that point anymore. But in verse 7, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, he says that all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations of great kings shall make him their slave. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of God, and then he's going to be a slave to the nations as God in his sovereignty overturns everything Mm -hmm. and punishes Babylon for their sins as he is punishing his own people for their sins. Now, we've talked a lot about the 70-year prediction that Jeremiah first gave in chapter 25, verse 11, and he gives it again, where does he do that In chapter twenty nine um seventy years man I, there's so many um
0: it happens all over the place I'm thinking of
1: I forgotten it. I had it written down, and I can't find where I wrote it down um and it's I mean, I know nobody's out there thinking, oh please come up with that verse. I gotta <laughs> write that down. But now I just have to look it up. It's uh, verse 3 through 6 of chapter 27. Does he say that in verse
0: 6? Got it. 29.10. Thus says the Lord, Ah, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, fulfill my promise, and bring you back to this place.
1: Now, I believe that number 70 is wrapped up in this idea of the three generations of Babylonian conquest in verse chapter 27 verse 7 because okay. a generation is roughly 40 years well this is not going to work is it on the long end a generation is 40 years Yeah. but that's like you know this is generations of reigns the word generation is not used here but uh, the idea of rulership so mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule then his son is going to rule then his son is going to rule And then Mm -hmm. it's over for Babylon. And biblically, those generations are spelled out as Nebuchadnezzar, and then Evil Merodach, who has the coolest Mm -hmm. name of a king in the Bible. Yeah. Evil Merodach, and then Belshazzar, who's mentioned in Daniel chapter 5, and he's called Nebuchadnezzar's son there. But, you know, son is used often in terms of grandson. Uh, Archaeologists are a little confused about Belshazzar and who he was, whether he was a son or a grandson, but. I believe this indicates that Belshazzar, the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, or the Chaldean Empire, was um, that third generation. Mm -hmm. And then he was, of course, defeated by the Medes and Persians. And Cyrus came in and changed everything and released the Jews from their captivity. So Mm -hmm. when you think about it, you can think in terms of three generations or you can think in terms of 70 years. But this problem for the Jews caused by Babylon was going to last that length of time. I just thought it was interesting to point that out. Um, I'd never noticed that three generation Yeah, it uh, gives
0: a little more continuity to the given. story. Makes it easier to stick in your mind, I guess, to up to the time where you get to Ezra where Cyrus releases everybody and lets them back uh, when Persia winds up taking over the Babylonian Empire. Um... In chapter 28, if we're ready to move on to the next thing...
1: Well, uh, I don't as long as I can come back to 27 into... for the vessels. Oh,
0: the vessels? Yeah, either way is fine. You can go ahead and do the vessels. Well,
1: before... Uh, l- let me just do this, because this prophecy concerning the vessels is really interesting to me. That begins in chapter 27, verse 19. Um, Thus says the Lord concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels left in the city... Which Nebuchadnezzar did not take away when he took into exile, you know Jeconiah and all those guys. He says um, they will be carried, verse twenty-two, to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them. That is, visit Babylon or visit the captives, whichever way you want to interpret that. Then I will bring them the vessels back and restore them to this place. These vessels have a storied history throughout right. the Old Testament, and you brought up one reference I had not written down, I hadn't thought about, is when, it, you know, well, let's go before that one, though, to Solomon constructing them, okay. you know, billions of dollars worth of gold and silver, iron, and other metals were donated to right. the construction of the temple, and along with that, the, these craftsmen made these beautiful vessels to furnish the temple. Mm-hmm. And they were they were consecrated. They were sacred, and as a way of desecrating the temple, and also to fill their treasuries, the Babylonians, when they destroyed the temple, removed them. Evidently, they'd already removed some of the items. Uh, Jeremiah says the ones that are left, verse 19. Uh, so they took the rest of them in 586 in the final conquest, and you know they're taken out and all this began like you said with Hezekiah showing them that they're there mm-hmm. you know and that planted a seed in the Babylonians minds Right. Oh, one of these days we're going to come back and get these these are really nice Yeah. so they get them and then in chapter 5 of Daniel Belshazzar's having that feast where the hand appears right, right on the wall guess mm-hmm. what they're using to drink wine out of the vessels from the temple of the Lord right. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. And then you finally see them again in Ezra chapter 1 when Cyrus, the king of Persia, has defeated Babylon and is releasing the Jews to go back home. He sends with them materials to rebuild the temple, but he also sends the vessels that are supposed to go back into the temple that were made under the leadership of Solomon. He's sending them back yeah. to refurnish the temple again. So all yes. of this comes full circle, as Jeremiah predicted. Once again, you see his prophecy coming true.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. And there's one of these things in here I want to mention: the sea. When I read yeah. through this, and that's if the
1: ocean. That's the Atlantic. Ocean. Yeah,
0: the Atlantic Ocean was in the was in the temple. Now, if you're listening and you haven't, you know, you don't have the opportunity to read this, this is spelled S E A, just like the Dead Sea. Something yeah. like that. So it's kind of a confusing term. Thank goodness for commentaries and the like. Otherwise, I'd still be really confused. But here's what this sea was: it was a large bronze basin resting on twelve bulls, three facing in each direction. It was used by priests for the ceremonial or for ceremonial cleansing, and you can read about that in First Kings seven and in Second Chronicles four. So it's just kind of a I guess a really neat picture there of what that is. A really big bronze thing that people or that the priests would clean certain um uh, things in for ceremonial ceremonial cleansing. I wonder if that Drew, does that include themselves?
1: Yes. Okay. So yeah, almost um, like a
0: big wash wash basin, really.
1: Sometimes it's called a laver uh which doesn't help much, I realize no, but I've never heard of that. It's either. a wash basin, but it's it, um Oh, I was just talking about the temple Sunday, and I want to say it held 12,000 gallons, 12,000. Well, there's so I forget the measurement, but this is an enormous yeah. basin. These and then there were smaller basins also in the courtyard outside the temple. This is one yeah. of the two items that were in the courtyard of the temple, the other being the altar for burnt sacrifice. Mm. Um, and I think that they may... I mean, it would have been a lot hard to move this the largest one. He could be referring to the smaller ones that Solomon made, but they're all overlaid in gold. You know, that so makes very... sense
0: that they called it the sea, if it could hold that many gallons of water. Oh, yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense that they would call it that, like a little ocean. Yeah. So that's really neat. The vessels there are really interesting. All right, I want to move on to Jeremiah's uh, something that you see kind of behind the text here. It's not really brought out into the open, but Jeremiah's credibility. Now, you remember so far some of the things we have read, specifically Jeremiah's night in the stocks. There have been a lot of things that have happened that have been done with the motivation of discrediting Jeremiah and his word. Nobody wants to hear his message because his message is not a very nice one, I guess. It doesn't really make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And that's not what the people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear things like what Hananiah is saying to them. They wanted to hear these lies of it's peace with the people. You know, nothing bad is going to happen. You're going to be fine. You haven't done anything wrong. And so Jeremiah's credibility has been... Called into question several times already, as we have seen. But here in chapter 28, I think you see that Jeremiah's credibility has been built up to some degree. Because keep in mind, Jeremiah started out prophesying, saying that Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, was going to come in and take away the people of Israel into captivity. What has already happened at this point? Jehoiachin has already been taken to Babylon. Right. There's already been the first, like you mentioned, the first deportation. I guess is the, the best two word deportations. For it. Or yeah, the first two, as a matter of fact. So
1: you got you had the one in uh, six oh five, yeah, and then you had the second one in five ninety seven. This yeah. well, so is sometime after that.
0: So we've had about uh, ten years. Yeah, I forgot.
1: Jeremiah starting to look like he's telling the truth here.
0: Right. So people have had ten years to realize at this point, or close to it, at least eight some time to realize that Jeremiah is telling the truth. And I think that even comes up right here in chapter 28, verse 2, where this false prophet Hananiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. So no longer are they refuting the fact that, you know, they can't refute anymore that Babylon's going to come. So they're almost conceding. The fact that, okay, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar is here, but, you know, see, now they're having to make up new lies because Jeremiah's already been proven right. And I think, you know, there's something to say for what Jeremiah says back to Hananiah when he says, you know, the prophets of old have prophesied war and pestilence and all these bad things, but as for the one who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then we'll know that the Lord has truly sent him. So he's kind of saying, I mean, lying behind that for me is, look, I've been prophesying from the beginning that this is going to happen, and look what's happened. Babylon has come in. We are facing these terrible things just like the prophets of old. But we've had these prophets prophesying peace, and, you know, if what they're saying is true, where's the peace? You know, Mm -hmm. my words have been backed up. I am from God because the things I prophesied have come to pass. What have you prophesied? What did you prophesy 10 years ago, Hananiah? Hananiah was probably one of the guys, and again, we're reading into this here, but if he's a false prophet, what were the false prophets saying? They were saying, peace, peace, all is peace, comfort for the people. So it's likely that 10 years ago, Hananiah was saying, hey, look, Babylon's not going to come in. And now, well, we've changed it from Babylon's not going to come in to, well, God is going to break this yoke of Nebuchadnezzar within 10
1: years. uh, yeah, in 605s when that really started to turn around because they had put their hopes in Egypt, right? And uh, I think in 605 that Nebuchadnezzar just crushed Egypt, so they quit talking about Egypt all of a sudden and they're changing. Mm-hmm. You know when you know what this reminds me of. Remember that guy? I think it was in 2011. It's been a long time ago now, or maybe it wasn't more recently than that. But he said the world's going to end. I don't remember the exact month, but it was like, I remember it was the 21st of the month. It was like March 21st, 2011. Hmm. I believe that's when it was. Hmm. The end of the world. I have locked myself in a closet for six months, and I've studied the prophecies. And get your stuff ready, because God's coming. March 21st, 2011. Well, on the 22nd of March, this guy should have been like saying... I am a false, you know. Please forgive me. I'm a false teacher. I was mistaken. I have no, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. But instead, he goes, "I made a slight error." It's October 21st, 2011. So he doesn't even go out like a few years. Yeah, he's like, get him. And people are still following this guy. And then after October 21st, if that was the date, I think he finally quit talking. He's, yeah. He was like 90... It was Harold Camping, I think, is mm. who it was. And he's in his 90s, and he was, uh, you know, had a big following. Um, mm. And I think people finally quit listening to him. It also reminds me of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is casting out demons. Mm. And they've gotten to the point where they can't say, this isn't the Son of God, you know, he he can't do anything supernatural because he is clearly yeah. healing people and casting out demons... So they do the next best thing. You know, it's kind of like these guys saying, well, in two years. And they're saying, well, yeah, he's casting out demons, but he's doing it by the power of the prince of demons, not by the power of God. Right.
0: They're conceding the one thing. Once they you know, they realize the truth and they have no way around it, and so they've got to make up another kind of lie or some other way around it. it I guess it goes to show, there's a good application here, that sometimes, no matter how much you show or how much you... Have it proven to you, you're just not going to believe because you're stubborn, kind of like the people of Israel are here. And it really shows. And I'll add this in here real quick on this point too. Jeremiah's credibility is going to go way up in the seventh month of the fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah because that's the month that Hananiah is going to die. And I'm sure when Hananiah died, there were a lot of people thinking, hey, two months ago, Jeremiah said Hananiah was going to die this year. And he did die. 2 months later. So Jeremiah, it's interesting here what's going on behind all these things. Jeremiah's credibility is rock solid right now. Whereas opposed to these false prophets, these liars that you mentioned and of all those different groups, the liars, their credibility, they don't have it because they have said peace, they have said all those things and none of that has come to pass. Everything Jeremiah has said has happened down to the last thing. People still don't want to listen to. It.
1: Let's get into this. Practically, uh, some lessons that we can take away from this. Number one. You should know teachers, you shall know teachers by their fruit. In other words, pay attention to what they're saying and whether or not it comes to pass. Or another way of looking at it as Christians with the written word is compare what they're saying to what the Bible says. In Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 9, you know, um, Jeremiah says, As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. And it reminded me of what Moses told the Israelites long before this in the book of Deuteronomy. When he's setting up this nation, he's, he's preparing them to take the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, "...the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Boy, that is a lesson we need to learn today. When a man stands up and presumes to speak a word from God and... You open your Bible, and it doesn't say what that guy is saying. Right. We don't need to be afraid of him, except in following him. We need to be afraid to follow him. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said that these guys will look like sheep. But they're wolves. Beware of yeah. false prophets who wear sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says you will recognize them by their fruits. Mm-hmm. Matthew seven sixteen. So, you know... That's the first lesson here. It's a very important one.
0: Yeah, and I think it it ties directly into the fruits of the spirit that we're given in Galatians chapter five verse twenty two. To where nowadays, I think people are like, well, how can you tell? And this is also in uh, is it First John test the spirits. Yeah, First John um, four one. Yeah, First John four, where there are people saying, you know, how do we know who to listen to? And Not that that's unfair, because I think it's a very valid question to ask. How do we know who to listen to? Because all these different people have different ideas about God, about Christ, about his teachings. How do you know who to listen to? And this is what makes or breaks it. And I think we, a lot of times we try and think of nowadays, well, if this guy is... And you see on TV, these people are trying to heal folks and all that, you know, things that... uh, you know, or a big scam, and so by their fruit, you know, they're proven to be untrue. That's why a lot of people don't believe in it. Um, but I think it's really simple, because when you break it down according to what the New Testament says, you have uh, in First John chapter 4, where John says, anyone who confesses the name of Christ, that is, you know, that is someone who's from Christ. And then you have here in Galatians 5, but then you get in more technical stuff. Well, they believe that there's Christ, but... All this stuff is wrong. Well, I think Galatians chapter 5 is a good way to look at that. What kind of fruit should you be bearing? If you have the Spirit of God in you, it doesn't say anything here about healing people, raising people from the dead, uh, healing blindness, or any of those kinds of things. Here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, here's how people are going to know it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wrapped up in that, certainly in faithfulness, you have wrapped up the uh, willingness to be obedient to the Word of God. You know, faithfulness to the Word of God. How how uh, much are you going to stick to the commands of God? Are you going to be faithful to Him? So, certainly, we have a way to recognize people, and I think this is really lends itself perfectly into your next point. I'll kind of take it a different direction, that you can use it the way I think. You're wanting to use it as to what Jeremiah is going to do in chapter 28 when he doesn't say anything back to the false prophet there. He just chooses to walk off, you know, because he didn't have a word from God. He didn't try to presume that he had a word of God there to, to deliver in that moment or try to just talk off the top of his head without knowing that he had a word of God. And He yeah. waited until the word of God came to him, and then he came back to Hananiah, and said, okay, here's what God says to you. It's not like Jeremiah wasn't clever enough in the moment to fire back a response at Hananiah after Hananiah broke his yoke. You know, it's not that Jeremiah was not quick-witted enough. It was simply that the prophet of God has to wait on the word of God.
1: Yeah, his his wit is in good shape. Because oh, yeah. uh, we didn't mention chapter 28, you know, when Hananiah first comes up and says all this stuff. In verse six Jeremiah says, Amen. You know yeah. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true. Uh that is sarcasm, folks. He's not mm-hmm. being serious there. I mean maybe he's saying, I wish it were so you know, yeah. I wish that we could look at life through rose tinted glasses and it be so or he's just, you know, mocking him. Yeah. And I think maybe a little of both. But then this guy starts smashing up his yoke, mm-hmm. and you know he didn't say, "Hey, you yo, you owe me a yoke." You know he didn't say anything. He just, he just walked away. So the lesson there is sometimes you just have to walk away. Uh, that's verse eleven. Jeremiah just went his way. Yeah. But then in verse twelve, sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars. From off the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, the word of the Lord, came to Jeremiah. So he returns, but not until he gets a word from the Lord. I remember one time, um, you know, it was when I was first starting preaching. I wasn't that good. I wasn't like you, Andrew, where you came out of the womb being no, a good preacher. Please. I started out really rough. and um You know, I was giving one of my early sermons, and I was filling in for somebody who wasn't there, and, um, you know, I don't remember, evidently it was longer than some people wanted it to be, and an elder met me out in the foyer afterwards, and instead of encouraging me, he said, you know, you do a good job, but you're not good enough to preach 45 minutes, and I know I didn't preach 45 minutes, but, you know, he was really trying to hurt me, and and I remember I just I don't think it was because I was noble or smart I think it's just because I didn't know what to say I just didn't say anything and walked away and it was like I had stumbled upon something that was very useful instead of saying something sometimes the most effective strategy is just not just don't say anything at all Yeah I think and we're
0: so tempted to have like a witty comeback so nobody gets the best of us or we don't feel like they're good. You know what I'm saying Right, because we want to
1: show everybody we're smarter And there were people who were standing around when this was said to me Watching to mm-hmm. see how I would respond And I think it was better That I didn't say anything Because if I had What, what could I have said Hey, that, that was good You know, yeah. What could I say There was nothing I could say um, and, and it was best not to say anything at all yeah, um,
0: certainly I think we do really good everybody would do really good to practice that a little more often to yeah. be able to just walk away because it also kind of speaks to you know much like I think what's going on here with Jeremiah to discredit you know I think that probably discredits the other person more than anything else you could do and again maybe this is from the wrong motive again trying to get the one up by walking away but number one you know I, I just think here with Jeremiah and Hananiah, you have Jeremiah walking off because he doesn't have the word of God. And, you know, it's almost like he doesn't want to have to deal with Hananiah. Or is like, you know, just doesn't even want to waste his time on him and walks off. You know, I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of the picture. That's what it would look like, I guess, if you're standing there watching it. Because I'm thinking if I'm standing there in the foyer when that situation happens with you and you just look at the guy like he's a moron then turn around and walk off...
1: Well, Hannah and I looked like a fool at the end of it. Yeah. But, you know, the wise man said, answer a fool according to his folly. And he also said, I'm paraphrasing, but if you answer a fool, you can't answer a fool without becoming a fool. Yeah. See, if you get involved in this... You know, a debate with a logical, rational person is one thing. Mm-hmm. But getting in a conversation with a fool like Hananiah is totally, is all that's going to do is ruin your credibility. And as yeah. you had pointed out, Jeremiah had built up quite a bit of credibility. Right. And he was on his way to having even more. And throughout this, we'll see him suffer a great deal, but we'll also see him respected more and more and more as his prophecies come to pass.
0: Right, and I think we can all... uh, Another great application for this is if you're in a debate with somebody about Scripture or about the existence of God, if they give you a question that you don't know the answer to, don't try and answer it right away. If you don't have the information at hand, then it's perfectly fine to go and get the information and then answer the question. Because what you're going to do is, if you start trying to answer... A question for which you have no answer, you're going to give some kind of just bogus answer that's going to be ridiculous probably. You know, unless you're really quick-witted and really smart, if you are, fantastic. But I know for me, if I get a question I don't know the answer to, someone asks me a very difficult question, I'll say, you know what, let me do a little study on that and I'll get back to you.
1: Well, and another rule of thumb when you get in biblical discussions is if you don't have control of the conversation, don't throw much in there. Yeah. Because um, You know, that's another thing that I've, somebody wants to get into, tongue. you know, tongue speaking is one of the ones that, you know, comes up all the time and people feel very passionately about it. And we're in a barber shop or someplace like that, Walmart, and somebody brings it up. I'm not going to have the time or the person's ear who's listening to me to really walk through that complicated subject. And so, rather than try to overpower that person and take over the conversation, I just don't contribute a whole lot. I may show yeah. my dis. I may say, "Well, that's not exactly what the Bible says," or whatever. But I can't. Get, I can't win that debate when somebody's already, you know, started it. And I, boy, I have a lot of examples. We're running out of time yeah. on that. Just you know, if it's best to be in control of a biblical discussion yeah. that you're prepared for. If you're not, it's kind of what you you're were saying. If you're not prepared and you're not in control of it, don't add a whole lot to it. That's why I believe in Bible studies that follow a system. Whatever that system is, get a tool that you use and um, study the Bible with that so that when people try to get off track of what the fundamental gospel is, you can say, well, that's a good question. I'd like to get back to that, but let's let's get back on track for now and stick with the study, and I'll write that down and, and yeah. answer that later. Because some, so often people don't want to talk, they want to talk about the Bible mm-hmm. without discussing what the Bible is about. You know, they just right. talk around it, you know, and get into all their, you know, conversations that are fun for them. Yeah. Rather than the heart of the matter, you know, which is Christ and, and his crucifixion.
0: Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb to have here is exactly what Jeremiah did. If you don't have some sort of credible word to say, just don't say anything at all. Yeah, and you know, just wait said, until you do.
1: We said a lot more about that than we thought we were going to, but that's a really interesting scene. Let's jump over to chapter twenty-nine. There's a couple of really good things there. Uh, big practical applications here. In verse seven of chapter twenty-nine in the letter to the exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah tells them to seek the welfare of the city where they have been sent. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's the third lesson. The proper attitude of God's people in a godless land is to pray for that land. A lot of Americans are upset about what's going on in our country right now, and they should be. There's some very disturbing things. There always have been disturbing things in this country and in the world, and we certainly haven't reached the point of where the captives of Babylon were or where, say, Peter was in the Roman Empire when he was telling his readers to pray for their king, Mm -hmm. um, to honor the emperor, to behave themselves in an honorable way in front of the Gentiles. I'm summarizing a lot of passages that i had written down here. But the proper attitude is to pray for your leaders, pray for your country, so that you can, to use the words of Paul lead a peaceful and quiet life. Mm-hmm. You know, the government is not going to be the church. And this is something that, you know, I had a conversation on the phone with a lady this morning where I was trying to explain to her that politics is not the answer to life. Right. And, you know, people get so wrapped up in it and they want the government to fight God's battles for him. That's what the church is supposed to do. But the government mm-hmm. is supposed to keep... Um, people from oppressing us and give us our religious liberties. And so as long as we have the freedom to practice our religion, our faith, and and to evangelize and to teach, then we're in about as good a situation as we're going to be in when it comes to the government. Right. But this, this last application is really good too, so I'm going to let you make that one before we go too far down the government politics road. Okay, and I
0: know that's... I mean, I'd like to talk more about that, especially with all the debates and things that are going on now, but...
1: I'm sure um, we'll have another opportunity in Jeremiah because there's a lot of political disturbances in the latter part of the book.
0: Yeah, but I want to move on, too, because I think this next one is extremely important for us. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord... Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a passage I know that a lot of people probably have in their house, hanging up somewhere, or committed to memory. Something when things are going bad, this is a good verse of encouragement, and it is. But I do think we need to be careful when we read passages like this and Romans 8.28 that say all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. I think when we read those passages, a lot of times we kind of read our own meaning into that. Yeah. We read this in verse 11 and we say, you know, I have plans for you, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And our, our definition of that future and hope might be a little bit different from the actual future and hope that we really have. You can read from Paul in Philippians chapter 3, the prize at the end, the thing that he's straining for, is what comes from the upward call of Christ uh, or of God through Christ Jesus. And that certainly is the reward of an eternal life with Christ. Paul talking there just in the verses prior. He talks about attaining the resurrection from the dead, not through a righteousness of his own, but through the righteousness that comes through belief in Jesus. So the ultimate thing at the end here, the future and hope that we have, is not necessarily health and wealth here on earth. Now I think that is the temptation for us all, to some degree, to where you have a loved one who is diagnosed with some awful disease, you know, that, that is life threatening, and so we immediately, you know, like we should, the first thing we ought to do is hit our knees in prayer and pray to God about, you know, please uh, heal, or we, you know, we hope that you will heal him, and we need to pray in faith. James chapter one says, pray with faith Um, because if you don't, pretty much don't expect anything from God and that's in the first few verses where James is talking about praying for wisdom so we need to pray with faith and we need to pray but we also need to pray with a fair mind You know, much like I'm thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego some guys we've already mentioned right before they were thrown into the furnace their exact words to Nebuchadnezzar were God as well, I'll paraphrase their exact words how about that Um, they say You know, God is able to save us and he will, but even if he does not, let it be known that we would not serve your gods. So they were very fair. They had faith in God. They knew that he had plans for them for good, but they also knew that their will was not the important one. It was the will of God and that God was going to do good or God was going to have these good plans for them, not for evil, whether or not they were burnt up or not. So I think we need to be fair-minded to Concede our will to the will of God. And when we read passages like this, I have plans for you, not for evil, but to give you a future. He's not saying, I have plans for you to have uh, a nice retirement. I have plans for you to have a great career. He's saying, I have plans, the way it translates to us today, or the way it applies to us today is, I have plans for you to be with me for eternity. And you know, anything on this side of that, is working together for that. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Think trial strengthen your faith, but and all these different ways you could take the application. But the important thing is understand what this ultimate plan is, and the ultimate plan is for you to spend eternity under, with God.
1: Yeah, under the new covenant, which you know, right? He had something very specific in mind in the context of chapter twenty-nine that a lot of people who quote that verse have no idea about. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's why we do what we do at the 66 is not to sound like, you know, we got this big operation going, but we are. We have this mission to go through every book of the Bible and understand it. And there's this attitude that, you know, well, the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with me. And then people will quote from the Psalms from Jeremiah, pulling things out of the context that they that they want, because there are some beautiful things in the Old Testament and I don't think that's right. I think we should know the Old Testament understand its relationship to the New Testament. And right. our last episode of Jeremiah is really going to uh, tap into that as we talk about chapter 31. But we're out of time today, and we're so thankful to you for joining us. More and more listeners are telling us that you know they're listening, and we love to hear that. We hope that you keep listening and stay with us. Uh, We're closing in now on the last few episodes of the Book of Jeremiah, but there's still a lot of good stuff to go. So stay with us and check out, if you haven't done so already, our other episodes on other books. We've covered a lot so far. We know we're close to the halfway mark. Uh, We've got a lot more to cover, and uh, we look forward to doing that. Until next time, we'll catch you later.